Welcome to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance. And this week, Cameron and I have a conversation with a guy that we've been excited to have on for a while. He's a friend of ours, Dr. Anthony Lissy. Uh, he's based here in Dallas. Cam and I are both clients of his, as well as we recommend our clients to his practice. And as you'll hear in this chat, he's a doctor that's on the cutting edge of health and wellness. And in this chat, he's going to help us identify new ways and means to improve our performance through just how we take care of our body or minds. Specifically, we're going to discuss his four pillars of wellness, nutrition, movement, sleep, and stress. These are incredibly important topics to understand. And Dr. Lissy is a really good teacher. He takes some complex concepts and in this conversation will help you create a better awareness for functional wellness and its role in earning an edge in golf and in life. I know for me, there were a lot of things that I wasn't doing well enough or really at all, just because I haven't had a good understanding for them. And that's changed because of Dr. Lissy, which is why we've been so excited to have him on the pod to do the same for you, to improve not only your golf game, but just your functional health and wellness. I promise this is incredibly important stuff. So stay tuned for plenty of actionable guidance from a leader in the industry. And as always, thank you to our friends at Total Golf Trainer. This is by far our favorite training aid at Altus. We've been trying to post more examples of how we use it with our clients on Instagram. We will continue to do that. There are about a million ways that you can use the Total Golf Trainer. And if you're listening to this podcast, we can assume that you're invested in and getting better. So it only makes sense that you use a tool that can do it all. Full swing, short game, putting, no tool will provide you with better or more customized feedback. So go to totalgolftrainer.com, purchase a TGT 3.0 kit. You'll get a nice discount by using the promo code earn your edge. No excuses. If you're trying to get better, you need the right tools. And we found nothing better than the total golf trainer. Go order one today, but first sit back and enjoy some health and wellness wisdom from one of our favorite guys. He's taught us a bunch. Now it's your turn. Enjoy episode 81 of the earn your edge podcast with Dr. Anthony Lissy. I guess I should thank you in advance of uh, kind of getting into the nitty gritty because in doing some research, on you and what you do and also the pillars of wellness that you uh, kind of frame the they are framing the conversation i was motivated yesterday to make a whole lot better choices probably in nutrition than i otherwise would so at the front end of this uh, a wholehearted heartwarming thanks <laughs> yeah you got it i think after uh, after december most of us are have our eyes most wide open to the idea of making some changes uh, but uh, it, this is a fun time of year for me because everybody comes in really invested to start moving the needle in the right direction right on yeah as a little bit of an intro to what you do to maybe be helpful to the listener to understand the kind of services that you offer i can share a little bit of my experience in working with you a few weeks ago i came to your office we talked about what some of my health and wellness goals are you helped me identify where there are some opportunities to improve and then you ran some blood tests you took some spit and urine samples and then a couple weeks later based on those results, you deliver this unbelievably comprehensive presentation on kind of just where I am from a health perspective. And while presenting that, you you educated me on a lot of really important aspects that made taking action in some cases feel a little bit more urgent to do, but more than anything, just really doable. You, you gave me a really clear plan to follow moving forward. And from a golf coach's perspective, 
it was really helpful to see it kind of like a strokes gained approach, the statistical analysis of all those different health markers and metrics that can help us reevaluate over time, you know, where I've gotten better, where I haven't made progress and need to continue to re- refine that plan. So I came away from the process more educated than I've, I've ever been regarding my own health and wellness and more prepared and knowledgeable to attack some, some important changes that you recommended. So my own personal experience motivates us to, to have you on and educate our listeners. And we also know that you're doing a lot of the same thing for competitive golfers. And this is an aspect of performance that is probably still neglected. So that's how I would introduce you. Um, what would you add to the description of what you do for the athletes that come see you? What's interesting about what I do is that, you know, it's never started as a, as a golf wellness program. But what's interesting about the game of golf is I would argue that more than any other sport out there it requires fundamental coordination of mind, body, spirit on a consistent basis to get to where you want to be. And, you know, all sports have that to some extent, but I think golf is is so different in that there are so many little things that can throw you off over the course of a hole, 18 holes, 72 holes, you know, a season. And for those little 1% differences that you can get from just a little bit of input on people's own accord with the right information, it can really pay dividends downstream. And so, I got into the whole wellness efforts in an attempt to try to be a better physician. You know, when I trained, I looked at the healthcare landscape and I was really discouraged. I saw a lot of docs, you know, treating uh, ills with pills and just matching up, okay, your cholesterol's high, so take a cholesterol medication. They never looked at the upstream aspect of things. It was just how quick can we put a Band-Aid on things downstream? And a lot of that was just the healthcare model, meaning that a doctor getting insurance reimbursements has to see 50 patients a day, and they've got roughly five to seven minutes face-to-face. Well, there's nothing I can do in five to seven minutes with you to take care of upstream issues. So all I have time to do would just be prescribe something for you downstream, and that's never going to fix the problem. It's just going to kick the can down the road. So I was very discouraged by that. I saw people that wanted to get healthier that couldn't. So I went out and I just developed this model that allows me to either have a membership basis, much like a country club or a golf club, to get people full access to me and my knowledge and to work with them in a team approach and or create these one-off kind of wellness consulting packages, very similar to what you did, Corey, in that we would find the data that we need to move the needle in the right direction and pair my goals with the patient's goals to get to where they wanted to be. Many people come in and they're like, look, I'm on six medicines. I don't want to take six medicines. I really want someone to help guide me down the path to wellness in the right manner. I know I've made some bad decisions, but I just need to know what I need to do now to fix those things and what we can do to prevent worsening downstream. So that's really how I got to where I got from a healthcare delivery standpoint. But what's interesting is the people that find me are the people that need that extra 10% of, of face-to-face communication and, and that extra little edge-earning knowledge to take their life and or game to the next level. I work with a lot of athletes, but I find, you know, obviously I have a passion for golf too, and that puts me in front of a lot of golfers. But I feel that the game itself really requires people to look next level with their um, all-in wellness. And that's very much in line with what I do. Doc, pulling on a couple of threads you mentioned there, and the one word that you've mentioned quite a lot, the wellness piece and going upstream. If you unpack wellness into what you shared with us in advance of the call into the four pillars or any number of pillars as you would define them, what are they? And then we'll dive deeper, hopefully, into each of them. 
Yep. So in my opinion, uh, I feel the there's four key pillars to wellness and we're looking at nutrition, you know, what you put into your body. Everything we put into our body is information for ourselves to act in one way or the other. Movement. We're talking about stressing the body and, and training the body to create a good stress. We're going to talk about good versus bad stress later on. You know, the dose makes the poison. We're looking for that adaptive response to be able to get what we want out of what we put in. And, and movement is one of those things we have to have for cellular cleansing and for growing and, and maintaining a healthy body. Regeneration is key. And we'll talk more about this as well, but whether it's sleep, whether it's cellular regeneration, whether it's cleansing the brain, you know, this is one of the things that in the last 10 years, I'd say has really gotten a big push in sports and, and wellness in general. It used to be work out as hard as you can and then sleep when you're dead. Well, now we're finding the real big push and the real big needle mover on this is, is not necessarily how well you work out, but how well you recover after your workout and then what you can get out of that and how you can create that adaptive response. And then finally, stress and stress management. You know, I used to just talk about movement, nu uh, nutrition and regeneration, but I, f I feel stress is so unique and um, how our body adapts to stress, both acute and chronic, and how much an improper stress reaction or stress management how much improper downstream effects that we see in the body. I feel it's so important to really address that and, and allow people to understand what different types of stress are, how acute and chronic stress affect our overall wellness. So those are my pillars. And, and really, just like anything, if you've got pillars holding something up and one pillar goes, you're likely going to have a crumbling. And that's the thing is you can't just put all your efforts in on one. You've really got to work to have that balance across all pillars. And, and just as one starts going, when you focus more efforts on the first pillar, you've really got to give all the efforts across the board and identify where we need the most help and maintain the ones that are working really well. Sounds very similar to a game we all like, right? I mean, it's you can't work on your T-balls and, and, and neglect the short game or the whole game will suffer. So again, you're going to find a lot of very much, uh, you know, in line with, with golf and, and, and how we look at things together, both on your end and my end. Let's start with that first pillar and talk about nutrition a little bit. As golfers, we, we're known, we kind of have this reputation that we'll do anything to get a little bit better. We'll buy a new driver. We'll watch uh, hours worth of swing videos. We'll go take lessons, but maybe even dabble in the gym. But I don't hear a whole lot of people excited or are willing to say, hey, you know what? I'm attacking my nutrition as a way to improve performance. And I think that that probably comes a lot out of it's hard to do, but there's also a lot of ignorance around that. And maybe if we had a better understanding for what does bad nutrition, how does that have a direct impact on my score on a given day? And, and if you can maybe paint that picture of have us understand the negative effects, then it makes it more compelling to seek out nutrition as a way to actually change the number on the scorecard. So with nutrition, you're looking at uh, acute effects and then chronic effects. You know, we've all eaten something we know we shouldn't and an hour later feel like garbage. And then we go back to what we're normally doing and everything's great. And so you, you look at the acute effects, but then you look at the chronic effects, right? Doing the wrong thing over and over is going to lead to extra weight, causing joint issues and mobility issues, poor muscle mass. It's going to affect immune system. And so now we're getting sick more often or we have a lack of appropriate training days. Um, and so all of these things we have to look at, okay, big picture wise, we all know that the better you eat, the better you're going to do. But what really happens? And I think the, the metric that needs to be followed or, or identified more is 
my concept of metabolic efficiency or metabolic flexibility, and, and it's not really mine, but it's one I really teach a lot about, but the idea that our body has different fuels, right? So you can use glucose in the form of glycogen that's stored in the muscle and the liver. Uh, you can switch into fat burning at times. Uh, we hope we don't switch into lean muscle burning. That's what we're trying to maintain. But if we can't burn fat for fuel efficiently, we will burn all the muscle that we're trying to build. And that creates an inefficient fuel source. And so I think that the number one thing people should experience, and I wish everybody could do this. I, I, a lot of my folks, I will kind of run them through a one-month trial uh, where they wear a continuous glucose monitor. And uh, you've probably seen the diabetics that wear these. It goes on the back of the arm, and it's a, a little catheter that you basically put into your arm, and it will 24-7 track your glucose, your blood sugar. And, um, and it's obvious for diabetics who are looking at things like that because their insulin response is inappropriate. But for people who don't have that issue, to be able to see how much of food affects your blood sugar is just eye-opening. And so what we're seeing is that people who used to think, oh, yeah, well, you know, I'd have a banana or an apple, what I thought was a healthy choice. And you see these massive surges in glucose and then a resulting massive surge in insulin. And if you understand the physiology behind it, you see, oh, wow, well, no wonder my body isn't doing what I think it should do after I eat something like that. Or they get these keto bars or, or these protein bars that, that look great and the marketing on them is fantastic. And you pick it up and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to perform better. This is the best nutrition ever. What a great alternative to eating a, a micronutrient rich whole food meal. And they eat the bar and then they see what their blood sugar does as a result of it. And it's like, wow, I should have just eaten a Snickers bar if I was going to get that, right? It tastes better. So the whole idea that insulin is our energy storage hormone, and that's released after we eat anything. The higher our glucose spike is, the more insulin we release. Insulin's job is to take the energy that we just ate and put it away in storage. And so when we get on this roller coaster of super high and super low blood sugars throughout the day, our body is constantly trying to catch up. It's constantly trying to say, okay, well, now I've got this high blood sugar, so I've got to pour this insulin out of the pancreas to go store that. And then we overshoot and our blood sugar crashes and we have those effects of the hangry feeling. Your brain is just not able to focus because the brain likes to have a stable amount of glucose. And so now you're chasing your tail all day as opposed to that nice, smooth glucose excursion line that allows our body to know what's coming. It allows our brain to feel better. And then the cellular changes that occur from those highs and lows in blood sugar and insulin will throw off the normal aging mechanisms, which we'll certainly talk about downstream. But I think that's the biggest thing is that the role of insulin in response to what we eat in glucose changes is the number one thing I wish people could have a better idea about. And now we have that technology with these continuous glucose monitors, and they're not that expensive. People at the high level of their game who, who want to try this for a month it's really intriguing to see uh, how the body responds to different foods. What are the likely diet choices that someone could make generally that would lessen or reduce the, the wave effect, the peaks and valleys in the, the insulin spike? The number one uh, macronutrient, and obviously when we talk about macronutrients, we're talking about fats, carbs, and protein. The number one macronutrient that I think just gets the bad rap is actually fats. And so we used to think, okay, if I eat more fat, I'm going to get fat. Or if I you know, eat more cholesterol, my cholesterol is going to go up. And we actually know that that's not the whole story. And we know there's a lot of very, very healthy fats that we can be putting in our body to stabilize blood sugars. So avocados, nuts, seeds, salmon, 
olive oil, MCT oil, coconut oil, all of these things are actually, in the lack of a better term, superfoods, because what they do is, you know, you're getting two for one bang for your buck in calories per gram uh, from a fat source. And what we want to see is we want to see a very nice, stable energy supply to the body. Our brain loves to oxidize fats and create ketones. You guys have heard of the ketogenic diet and what ketones can do, but the brain uses ketone bodies for energy. And it's a very smooth, very clean burning source of fuel. And so when we're constantly relying on glucose, you have that roller coaster, the fats actually are much more stable. And that's where we get that really deep sustained focus, that deep sustained energy and that overall feeling of wellness. So I think the number one thing people can do is try to increase healthy fats in their diet. Many times in the past, we've always been told, again, fats are the wrong thing to put in. So we take fats out, we eat the low-fat diet, and what do we put in in place? Carbohydrates. Well, what do carbohydrates do? They spike up insulin level. And so there's a book by Robert Yang. He's a nutritionist. He's out of uh, California. It's called Hole-in-One Nutrition. It's perfectly built for the golfer. I highly recommend every one of your followers take part in in diving into that book and, and really owning some of that because Robert does a great job of painting the PFF philosophy, which is protein, fat, and fiber. And it, you know what's not in there is carbs or sugar. Okay, So the PFF approach allows you to have great, healthy protein intake that's going to maintain muscle mass. It's got tons of micronutrient-rich, healthy fibers. We're talking our salads, our veggies, our uh, prebiotic fibers, our onions, our peppers, those types of things, all the fiber you want. And then finally, fats. And the whole idea behind the fats is what I just alluded to, in that we want to stabilize the sugars. We want to give our body a sustainable source to really maintain satiety, right? That's one of the biggest things. When we get on that roller coaster of blood sugars, we get hungry really, really often. And we're not hungry for an avocado. We're hungry for a handful of goldfish or pretzels, right? We want to give our body that rapid acting source of fuel from glucose. And so we crave that. That's where those cravings come from. The more stable our blood sugars are, the less our cravings are. Well, what else happens? Our brain focus becomes much more stable. Okay. We're talking about playing golf and we're standing over a four footer to save par. And the last thing we want to be doing is craving pretzels in our bag and then having our brain be like a monkey mind where we can't focus on the fundamentals that we've built to create our outcome. So I think that's the number one thing is trying to stabilize blood sugar. And I haven't even talked about weight, but the next natural progression is that the reason we store fat is because insulin is a fat storage hormone. It's an energy storage hormone. So if our insulin levels chronically become high, we will store fat more readily. And insulin turns a normal two-way road in and out of fat cells into a one-way road in. So we may have a lot of fat on our body that we're trying to burn, but we can't get to it because insulin puts a lock and key around those fat cells. So that's one of the biggest reasons why decreasing processed foods and decreasing sugar in general allows our body to become a fat-burning machine. And again, that's not necessarily for weight loss. That's more for focus and cellular efficiency. It's going to be hard for me to not send the conversation into kind of like a, a personal rabbit hole because I've dabbled in on the keto diet and being mm-hmm. deep in ketosis for an extended period of time for the last four years since hearing about uh, the benefits of it in listening to Tim Ferriss's podcast. So just as a, as a general statement of or opinion piece on the benefits of, of the keto diet for our audience, since it's certainly far more popular now than when I first became aware of it, what's your position on keto diet? 
So I'm a big believer in that one size doesn't fit all. For a lot of people, I think there's massive benefits to uh, a lot of different diets, keto included, I think, for the right individual. I think keto is great for brain health, for muscle maintenance, for fat loss. You know, one of the reasons why many of my people continue to use it after they achieve their weight loss goals is because of the mental clarity that they achieve. And that may be one of the things that, uh, that you've been experiencing as well. But again, when you create those ketone bodies as a result of fat oxidation, that mental clarity that you can get is like no other. You almost, when you, you can almost sense, when you do it long enough, you can sense yourself getting into ketosis. Mm-hmm. Everything just clears up. It's like the fog's lifted and you almost get this surge of energy. And that's exactly what is happening physiologically is that the body is like, wait a minute, you mean to tell me my muscles can use glucose and now my brain can use ketones and there's not a fight over the same substrate. This is awesome. And the brain and the body, everything responds accordingly. The biggest problem with that is that a lot of people kind of get into the dirty keto mode where they're basically going to McDonald's and eating just meat patties. And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, now we have to start getting the sourcing of the foods and understand <laughs> that eight pounds of bacon every day is probably not the best thing for us um, in general, you know, and I'm not, uh, bacon's great, but we don't need eight pounds of it every day. Like some people on the keto diet are, are looking at. So there's a responsible way to do it. And I think that when we're looking at our individual goals, it may check the box for a lot of people. And, and more importantly, when you're exploring how your body responds to different things, it's nice to experiment around with some of this stuff. And I've had a lot of the golfers on tour that I've worked with, they've tried it. And it hasn't been sustainable for them because of energy requirements throughout the day and or their muscle building goals and their recovery goals. Other people, they've done great with it. It's such a personalized uh, experience. And a lot of it has to do with where you start from, from an energy efficiency and metabolic efficiency standpoint as well. But there's a lot of benefits. There's no question. Awesome. You also mentioned sourcing foods there. And I'm, uh, this is a question I've never really had an, an answer to because I've never asked it, quite frankly. But how important is it, therefore, to have a food that you source organic? Yeah, I think it's important. However, I always put the caveat on where you know, I have people who are eating like absolute crap. And all of a sudden they think, well, I'm just going to go and start eating organic, but I'm still going to eat crappy organic food. And so there's a difference. Uh, I don't want you to go and think that everything in Whole Foods is going to be healthy for you because it's got an organic sticker on the box. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're already doing everything right and you're keeping processed foods to a minimum and you're keeping sugar low and, and you have 80% of your nutrition on point, yeah, organic is going to make a big difference. It's going to allow less genetically modified organisms into the body as far as food processing goes and this and that. But I always tell people the most important thing we can do is just try to eat natural. Whether something's organic or not is not going to be as big as a needle mover as just cutting out some of the processed packaged stuff. I mean, I've got people who, number one, can't afford to eat organically, but they can afford to just eat naturally. And I think that's the biggest thing is it's like trying to go two steps beyond where you need to be. You know, I always tell people first, let's try to cut out a lot of the processed type stuff and, you know, eat more whole foods. If they're organic, great. If they're not, don't worry about that right now. When everything else is on point, then we can start tuning things up with more organically sourced foods. The biggest thing is those Franken foods, as my kids call them, the, the processed foods that have all these ingredients you can't even pronounce. Those are more harmful than whether a banana is organic or not, right? And so that's really how I try to look at things in regards to organic foods. I think cutting out the the processing in foods is way more important than whether or not it was organic or not. You're an advocate for intermittent fasting. And so I wanted to give you an opportunity to, as a golfer listening, what's the best pitch for maybe introducing that into your lifestyle? 
Yeah, I'm actually really passionate about uh, about therapeutic fasting in one form or, the, or another. There's so many benefits that can occur from it. I will put the caveat out. You really want to get to the point in your mental and physical growth cycle where you know you have achieved your full growth potential. You have built the muscle the way you want. I don't recommend this for 15, 16 year olds. This is something where once you hit 20, 21, 22, like okay, now we can start looking at that as a tool in our toolbox. You know, it's different for the 40 or 50 year olds who have already achieved their growth potential and grown too much and want to dial some of that back. But this is not a great tool for those still in the active growth phase in their teens or even early 20s. And so that being said, intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding or alternate day fasting, there's so many different names for it. Essentially, the, the idea is, and there's so many different ways to do it. The idea is that you take a period of time where you're not eating or drinking anything that's going to stimulate insulin release, meaning anything with a carb, fat, or protein in it. So you can drink water, you can drink sparkling water, you can drink coffee unsweetened or tea unsweetened, and it's not going to break a fast. If you think about it evolutionarily, you know, when our ancestors got up in the morning, you know, they didn't roll over the fridge and like pull out some instant oatmeal and like grab a handful of berries. They got up, they had to be mentally and physically on point to go out and prepare or or catch the food for their day. And it might not be till noon when they got that food and they ate it. They also may be periods of famine or drought where there wasn't food readily available. That's why we have fat stores on our body to be able to ride those periods out. In 2021, we don't typically have a lot of that, right? We can go to the grocery store, we can drive through McDonald's, we can go to the fridge, we can get food whenever we want. And so we have this adaptive measure in our body that nobody really activates anymore. And what we find is that when we're not activating that period of time where we're not eating and we're not giving ourselves this period of rest, we're not activating these cellular cleansing mechanisms. The most popular one, autophagy, Greek means self-eating, and it's the act of cellular cleansing and that the cells will actually almost eat themselves, the dead and dying particles, they will have these different kinds of cellular particles that will kind of cull the herd, so to speak. And so now you have a more robust uh, cellular response. You don't have a lot of these inefficient cellular particles remaining. The only way to get to that point is through a period of fasting. And when you eat first thing in the morning, you will slip your body into the, the digestion and you'll use all these resources to digest and process. And there's insulin release and there's all these other hormonal effects that have to take place. When you don't do that, you allow all those available resources to go around and start cleaning the cells up. And so from an anti-aging standpoint and from an autophagy activation standpoint, there's very few things that are as effective as a time-restricted feeding standpoint. The most popular is probably the 16-8 intermittent fast, where basically you push your first meal of the day back to noon. Say you finish eating the night before at 8. It's a 16-hour period, meaning that you eat between 12 and 8. That's an 8-hour period of eating. So it's 16 fast, 8 eating. And most people actually do that just fine. It's kind of different than the old, you know, hey, meal, uh, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And we found a lot of people slip into that. And I have a lot of people come to me, they're like, I don't like breakfast. I feel like crap when I eat breakfast. And I, you're telling me not to eat breakfast. This is awesome. I can totally do this. This is very, very easy. Morning is the most busy time for me anyways. And that's one less thing to worry about. And what we find is that if we do this responsibly, and if we eat the right thing at our periods of time when we're eating in our eating window, we can get great benefits from this, not only cellularly, but for brain health, we can actually get into ketosis without having to eat a full ketogenic diet. And then we, we can get that cellular cleansing to really reduce 
uh, some of the wear and tear on our bodies uh, from a day-to-day basis. If you're recommending this to a competitive athlete, even when they're, they're say on a competition week, how are they able to manage energy or is that a concern of yours that maybe more fatigue or not being as nourished as, you know, traditionally, traditionally we feel like we need to be on say the day of competition? Yeah, that's a great question. And when I sit down for some, with somebody the first time that we start to implement something like this, if I feel that, you know, their, their labs suggest that they would be able to do this and, and get good benefit from this, um, I always have to go through a period of what we call fat adaptation. It's basically teaching the body to use fat for fuel, because if we go through this period of time and our body cannot use fat for fuel, we're going to burn through our glycogen stores pretty quickly. And if our body can't physiologically switch into that fat oxidation, we're then going to start burning muscle, as I talked about earlier. That's not what we want to see because it's a very inefficient source of energy and you're going to feel terrible when you do. And then all the gym gains that you have made are going to be lost. And so we have to go through this period where we adapt them. I'm not going to go from someone that eats first thing in the morning and tell them they can't eat till one or two in the afternoon. We're going to slowly work into it and we're going to build them the ability to uh, switch in slowly to that fat burning mode. So those energy levels are sustained. In theory, if someone is energy efficient and metabolically efficient and can switch into fat burning, the average person who's got, well, first off, nobody that has 4% body fat is average, but say somebody had 4% body fat, they would still have 40,000 calories of utilized energy in the source of fat if they could tap into it. And so most of us have well more than 4% body fat. And so you can think we have all the energy we need to use. So it's not like it's an energy dip. It's about accessing that energy. And that's where we have to build the slow approach to be able to use that fat for fuel. And so what I will have people do is do one or two days a week on non-competitive days. Maybe it's a recovery day. Maybe if they play Thursday through Sunday, uh, maybe Monday is a great day to do a little bit of a fast, kind of recover from that, get some cellular benefits as well. And then, you know, maybe again, Wednesday, but then, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday in competition, we may back off on that. I have people who have been doing it long enough and who are very metabolically flexible where they love having an afternoon tea time because they'll play their morning round fasted. They're that good at it and they don't eat anything. They don't drink anything. They drink lots of water and, and, and hydrate really, really well on course, but they don't eat anything and they actually maintain that level of cognitive focus, that sustainable fat oxidation to carry them through their round. And, and they... Many people who do this long enough and who are really efficient tell me that they play their best golf on a fasted state first thing in the morning. Then we have to get a little creative around, okay, what happens with early, late, and what do we do on the weekends when we're in contention? And what about that 2.30 p.m. tea time when you're one of the final groups? And we work through that and we start talking about, okay, you know, that's not going to be the day that we want to fast because there's going to be other counter-regulatory hormones in play, which we'll talk about downstream with cortisol. And so all of that ties together. And so the biggest picture is that we can take two or three days, a couple, you know, early in the week, a couple of times to just try and, and see how we respond to it, get to know how your body's going to react to it. The nice thing about fasting is unlike me giving you a medicine that, okay, if I give you this medicine, you take it for a week it, and you don't like it, you have to probably withdraw from it. You're going to have to take a week before you get back to normal. Fasting is not something to do. It's just something not to do. If we're not feeling good when we're fasting, guess what? Eat something and you break those negative outcome cycles. And so I love it because it's really, really easy to, uh, to adjust. It's really easy to modify and it's really easy to personalize. 
Titleist has just introduced the all-new Titleist Pro V1 and Pro V1X featuring longer distance, softer feel, and increased control. There's no better ball in golf, and it just got even better. We've been having fun at Altus learning about the new improvements and testing them out with players. Most notably, the new Pro V1 and Pro V1X have been completely reimagined from core to cover. There's a new aerodynamic cover, casing layer, and core technologies that help deliver longer distance, softer feel, and even more green side spin and control. Having the right equipment and tools is such a massive part of earning an edge over the competition, and you've got to be able to trust that your golf ball will perform. And absolutely nothing performs like a Pro V1 and Pro V1X. Always bring your best. Go load up on the all-new Pro V1 and Pro V1X for the next level of total performance. We'll go into movement, which is one of the pillars you mentioned at the front end, a really important one. There was likely a time not many years ago when golf athletes underappreciated the benefits of uh, body care, doing things necessary in the gym or on the treatment table, et cetera, to help their performance. But I think most, if not all players and their teams embrace the benefits of body care, I guess, at this stage. Do you agree or do you still see golf lagging uh, behind other sports in embracing body care? It's interesting. I put some thought into this and was kind of really looking at the golfers that I take care of. And I really find that there's almost a stratification. There's really a bifurcation in that the pros and those people who are very, very competitive, it's an absolute imperative part of their approach to their game. Um, They're always going to have some aspect of it. But I find a lot of amateurs use golf as the movement of life. I I ask them, well, do you work out? And they're like, well, I play golf twice a week. I'm like, Okay. And so I get that. I understand like that's compared to what they're normally doing, sitting in the office, you know, getting out and, and even riding in a cart is is activity for some. However, what we find is just like anything. I mean, the movement patterns are so specific and one small restriction in the kinetic sequence can throw so much off. And you as a coach could look at a movement pattern and say, oh my gosh, well, we've got to improve that. But if the body doesn't allow you to get to those positions that you as a coach feel they need to be at for their golf swing and for the outcome you're trying to get in a ball flight, you're never going to get the end result that you want. And so to that point, working out is one aspect of it. Yeah, we want to stay fit and we want to stay healthy and we want to be metabolically efficient. But I feel that the the proper movement patterns and, and really circumventing any restrictions in the body is just as important as working out for the, the competitive golfer. And so what you find, I mean, you know, in the last 10 years, you know, TPI, I think, was a leader in this, right? But what TPI has been able to do for movement patterns and, and working out with a golf-specific aspect has created so many downstream spinoffs and people focusing in this area and more attention that's been drawn to it. And it's amazing to see how different people can get to their goals if one little barrier is is removed uh, mm-hmm. from a physical standpoint. So I think it's massively beneficial. I think that everyone will benefit from some sort of movement training. Even if it's just little things that they can do on their own with stretching, with yoga, with band work, there's so many online programs now that you can sign up for. I mean, there's no lack of resources out there. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's really, it's now it's easier than ever to find someone who has uh, training in that world and who has experience in that world. And a lot of the, the golf clubs now are incorporating that into their member benefits or into their clubhouse and their gyms. And, and they're having people on site to help the golfers who, who want to do that, whether you're a starting for the University of Texas or whether you're, you know, a 65-year-old guy that's trying to break 100. I mean, I think there's there's massive benefits across the board to that, both from the wellness standpoint and general health, as well as the performance standpoint for, for yeah. doing what you want to do in the game. 
as you mentioned before, the, the number of spin-offs, the things that maybe sports science or the industry collectively has uncovered. Do you feel, uh, to your knowledge, are there things that athletes should be doing that aren't or other things that, that people in the, in the world of sports performance, particularly on the movement and fitness side, are overvaluing that we can probably shed time and attention on or redirect that time and attention to other more important things? Yeah, and I actually kind of alluded to this earlier, how for years it was uh, work out as hard as you can, you know, work out until you're throwing up on the gym floor. But now I think the biggest thing is around these recovery aspects to fitness. And as hard as you work out, your trainer may want you in the Normatec boots for 20 minutes afterwards, right? They may want you hitting the cryotherapy. They may want you doing some photobiomodulation. I think that the sports-specific or the golf-specific uh, chiropractor or physio is, is great in the cupping, the scraping, the dry needling, the manipulation, uh, there's infrared saunas. You know, I think that's the thing is that there's a lot of different ways to work out. And the general idea of creating this metabolic activity in the cells to flush toxins is, is awesome. And then we got to create the adaptive response with specific movement patterns. But to be able to recover the right way is just as important now. And I think that's one of the biggest pushes with sports science that we're now seeing. And so it's kind of like eating organic, right? Does it help the average person who's sitting on their butt 12 hours a day, well, well, no, probably not. We probably need to get some sort of workout approach in place first. And then once we start getting that tuned up to take those workouts to the next level and to take the benefits to the next level, that's where I feel these recovery strategies work. And you don't have to you know, go and, and buy a $800 Theragun, a lacrosse ball or a $35 foam roller can have massive benefits. Just like you, know, you don't have to have a gym membership at the $150 a month gym, it can be that you have some bands and you have a place you can do some pull-ups and some body weight work and some online yoga. It's, it's available for all. But I think that once we start getting the movement in place, you definitely need to put some efforts into the regeneration, the tissue regeneration standpoint. And that's what we see with sports science. We see a lot of people that were following the old mechanism of work out as hard as you can, work out as often as you can, and not have the recovery. And their bodies were breaking down long-term. So from a longevity standpoint and performance standpoint, the recovery aspect around fitness is just as important now. You pique some curiosity when you mentioned photobiomodulation. Can you unpack that one for our listeners? Because that one I'm probably unaware of. Yeah, so um, red light therapy is what some people know it as. What we've found is that uh, the near-infrared wavelength, when you apply it to cells transdermally through it's kind of like a tanning bed or there's big you know, lights that you can use, there's even topical um, administration wands that have this near-infrared wavelength that they emit, you can actually activate these cellular cleansing mechanisms through the skin. And it, it's very effective. The studies on it are, are very suggestive of, of great improvements in inflammation, immunity. There is a company called Novathor, and they're probably the most popular ones that make the, uh, the near-infrared wavelength photobiomodulation. And, and I used it quite a bit. And I think it's very, very effective for me. I've used a lot of people who are dealing with some immune issues. They've seen massive benefits from it. It's not cheap. It's not readily available. But I think that as we move towards the future of having more readily available sources of this near-infrared wavelength, there can be massive benefits cellularly to that. And again, just like sitting in the Normatec boots and checking your email or checking your Instagram feed, it's very simple to lay in the Novathor near-infrared wavelength bed if you've got access to it for 12 minutes three times a week and get some massive benefits there. Just as it's, it's fun as an athlete, as a, when you're moving better, you feel better. I think that when 
as coaches, when we have clients that we've seen for a long time and we're really in tune to kind of how they move, and then you see them get into and start to integrate some of these kind of pre-movement, post-movement therapies, we really start to take a notice. Like it's very clear. It's like, oh my gosh, you're really moving well. And similarly, as we kind of move on from movement to now sleep, we also can tell and we're in tune to, wow, there's a different response when you're recovered and when you're rested and recovered the right way. And we now see a lot of the players that are wearing, you know, there's a lot of wearables where they're tracking what their sleep. Uh, I think in golf, we're starting to figure out that there's some real importance to, to that recovery. So if you've got someone in front of you that you're trying to get some buy-in on the importance of sleep to their performance in both sport and life, what are you telling them? The more we understand the why of anything, the more we're able to make the changes we want to make. And what we now know, and really in kind of the medical science, this is a a fairly recent discovery, we find that the brain is just like an engine. It creates metabolic waste. It creates exhaust. But we never knew how the brain flushed that exhaust until 15, 20 years ago when the discovery of the glymphatic system, that's G-L-Y-M-P-H-A-T-I-C, not lymphatic, like the body detoxes and and flushes away toxins, but the glymphatic, strictly in the brain. And what we find is that there's these perivascular channels and there's little channels that are right around the blood vessels in the brain, and they only open up when the brain is in deep, relaxing sleep. And so we find that when people are not getting to the appropriate amount of deep, relaxing sleep state, the brain can't flush the toxins that are built up. And you basically will get the brain fog. You will get the increase in these plaques that can then lead to Alzheimer's down the road. Anybody that's had a young kid and has gone two or three nights waking up every three hours with a, with a newborn knows how poorly you function the next couple of days. And it's simply the reason, I mean, as a medical professional back in the day, when, when I trained, we could go 36 hour shifts and you do those once every three days and you'd work a 36 hour shift. And then you're expected to go into the hospital the next morning on eight hours of broken sleep and then go do it again. That there's reason they don't do that anymore because it was very detrimental. There's a lot of medical errors that can occur. So what we now know about how the brain detoxifies around sleep and how the lack of restful sleep will rapidly accelerate brain aging, it's not something we can afford not to optimize. And it's the hardest thing because many people for years have just labeled themselves, well, I'm just a bad sleeper. Well, you're not. There's a reason behind that. There's a physiologic reason behind that, whether it's blood sugar imbalances, whether it's cortisol surges, whether it's you training that pattern. It's like someone with a you know, out to end pattern has fought a slice their whole night life. It's not a, it's not a slice that you're not a slicer. You just don't understand the proper way to get from the inside and hit from the inside. And it's like, once you identify that everything else changes, right? It's the same thing in y'all's world and sleep I found is I would say kind of the, uh, the master's level class. Like we start with basic nutrition and we start then with, okay, you've got that down. Let's work with your movement professional. When people really, truly want to take their their, their game, their life, their wellness to the next level, it's when we really dig in on sleep and we really try to hack the sleep because there's so much benefit downstream. And, and so many people have just thrown in the towel, but there's so many things that can benefit that. If you haven't tried 25 different things, you're never going to get to that one thing that works for you. And everybody's got their trigger. And we just have to find the upstream reason why we're not getting the proper sleep. Um, and we really need to study the types of sleep that we're seeing, whether it's, hey, I have trouble falling asleep. Okay, well, there's a reason for that. I have trouble 
staying asleep. Great. There's a different reason for that. I have trouble where I wake up at three in the morning to go to the bathroom and I can't go back to sleep. Okay. There's a reason for that too. So once we identify where the problem is, then we can start attacking the downstream or excuse me, the upstream reason for that issue. Now you mentioned the wearables. I think the wearables are great. It's kind of a double-edged sword because with the wearables, you get great insight into your own sleep patterns based on what you do. And if you use the wearables correctly, every wearable that I've seen that's, that's worth its weight in gold, it's got a, a journal feature where every day you can put in there what time you ate dinner, if it was a late dinner, whether there was alcohol involved, how much alcohol was involved, what time the last drink may have been, whether workouts were there, what stress level was like, was there an emotional disturbance that day? And then you can actually get these great reports monthly where it will tell you, hey, whenever you ate dinner closer to one and a half hours from bed, you had a 17% drop in your deep restful restorative sleep. Okay, great. Wow. I never thought about that. Great. I'm going to push dinner up. And after a month or so of doing that, all of a sudden sleep scores improve. Okay, great. Like alcohol affects me. I get it. But what happens if I drink a happy hour cocktail before dinner versus have after dinner a glass of wine? Oh, wow. Look at that. 12% decrease in deep sleep. Got it. So if you use these things right, they will create the insight into what's causing or, or what's really driving the downstream effects. And so the problem with that, and this is where the double-edged sword comes in, I feel that if you use this enough, you can almost create an anxiety around it, where the first thing you do when you get up in the morning is you look at that phone and you see what your sleep score is. And if, you're, if you feel great and you thought you slept well, but the thing tells you you had like a 62% sleep score, you almost create this depression or anxiety around it when you use it long enough. I've seen it. I have experienced that. I have to take mine off a lot and go a month without it because it can absolutely create this self-fulfilling prophecy. And so I like them for giving you insight into what your body responds to. And again, it's just like me getting a lab test on you. It's just one more piece of information for us to use to make our long-term decisions and our interventions. But I think sleep tracking has really improved in its quality. We're getting more and more in line with kind of the, uh, the, the high-level industrial sleep study-like equipment with something as simple as a wearable on the wrist or the ring. So I do like those. And I think that the benefits of that, once you start understanding the why, can really, really improve things downstream. And, you know, it's just the quality. It, it, many people used to think it's a, it's a, how many hours of sleep did I get? Look, that's important, but if your sleep is broken or your sleep is really inefficient, you can lay in bed for 10 hours and wake up and still feel like garbage. Or you can sleep six and a half, seven hours, but you have a high efficiency rate and your REM sleep and your deep sleep is a big component of that total time. And now you're so efficient that you got what you need in a shorter period of time. And so the more we train our body to do that and we train our brain to get really efficient in our sleep states, the more time we're going to have to get up and get that early morning workout maybe or, or get up and, and attack the day. So that's really what we have to work through with a lot of people. And, you know, it's not something where we really fix in one visit. It's something where continuous communication, continuous data, learning about yourself and, and making changes, seeing how they work, seeing how you respond. If that doesn't work, move on to the next thing. Um, that's really how I think sleep optimization should be done. Personal experience was exactly as you described, almost like you had a window into my world. And I thought it was just a me problem. Possibly it's an every person problem. When you're studying yourself, tracking yourself, you obsess over it. So I've uh, cycled out of uh, using a wearable, not because I don't find them beneficial, but I was obsessing over it. But I feel like I 
have a level of intelligence now that allows me to take action on the things that I do during the day before bed and the supplements that are effective for me. And I guess falling under the category of things that I wish I knew then that I know now, uh, magnesium is a life changer for me. Supplementation at night, speed of sleep onset, and also duration before I wake and the measured quality of sleep that the wearable would tell me. So I guess on the heels of that, if you were ranking kind of the uh, the things that a person can do that are almost with a guarantee going to negatively impact the quality of their sleep and therefore the recovery they experience the next day, what would be the top one or two? And then on the flip side of that, what would be the one or two things that they could absolutely do? And maybe it's just don't do the ones that negatively affect you that would have really positive impact, maybe on the uh, supplement side. Yeah. So I think the number one thing that harms the vast majority of people, I mean, it's well-documented and there's no surprise that here in 2021 versus 1985, we've got people who sleep way worse now than they ever did. It's the advent of all of our blue light emitting screens, whether it's uh, our computer, our iPad, our TV, our phone that we're always on. I mean, many people, the last thing that they do before going to bed is they look at their phone or they're on their computer banging out emails right before bed. What we now know about any device that has a screen on it is it emits blue light. And the blue light spectrum is very stimulating to the pineal gland. The pineal gland in our brain regulates sleep and weight cycles. And so if you have, you know, the morning when the light comes through, the blue light spectrum of the light, the sunlight will stimulate your pineal gland and and cause you to, to wake up and be ready to rock. If you are stimulating your pineal gland right before bed with the screens, with phones, uh, with TVs, what you find is that you're basically recreating that morning sunlight and you find that it negatively affects your ability to dial down and get to that restful sleep state. So as far as that goes, there are numerous ways you can circumvent that. The blue light blocking glasses, I've actually got some right here and I actually will wear them during the day. It, they look like my Clark Kent Superman glasses, but basically they block the blue light spectrum. And every time I'm on a computer for more than 10 minutes, I'm wearing those. And that allows me to train the brain to get exposed to blue light when I need to in the morning, but later on in the day to dial that down and allow my body to get into deep restful sleep state at night. The other thing is that any computer, iPad, or iPhone is going to have what do they call it? Night shift mode, where basically you can eliminate that blue light. And so my phone, every day when the sun goes down, it will basically take the, the blue light spectrum out. And so it'll have like a warm color to it. The Flux or F-L-U-X app, you can install it on any computer and it automatically does the same thing. I highly recommend that. Uh, those are little things that are going to move the needle in the right direction as far as the blue light. The other thing too, is that I find people will actually train themselves to sleep inappropriately. What does that mean? Well, every time they go to bed, they get in their bed, in their bedroom, and they will get on some kind of stimulating activity, whether it's reading in bed, whether it's on the phone, whether it's watching TV in bed. Many people fall asleep with the TV on. Well, what you're really doing from a physiologic state is you're actually training your body and your brain to associate getting in that bed and being stimulated, right? So we wonder why then we lay there and we can't go to sleep. Well, you've trained over time your body to associate walking into your bedroom, getting into your bed with a stimulating activity. So that's one of the reasons why I recommend that if you're going to read before bed, if you're going to do anything before bed, go do it in another room if possible, or do it in a chair in your bedroom or, or somewhere not in your bed. 
When we get in bed, we need to go to sleep. That's it. And that's how you train your body to do that. There's a lot of things that can help in addition to that. We'll talk about meditation in a little bit as a, as a way to modify parasympathetic and sympathetic balance. However, you know, there's all sorts of deep breathing mechanisms that we can do and, and pre-sleep meditations. And a lot of these apps have now these sleep stories, which help kind of turn the brain off. Like most golfers, I think everybody has done it where they're laying in bed and can't go to sleep and they play their favorite course in their head or they reviewed the round that they did. Those things can be relaxing to some. You swing the golf club at me, that might not be very relaxing, but uh, <laughs> we have all these different tips and tricks and techniques. And that's why I like to sit down with people and find a personalized approach to what they're actually experiencing when they get to that point, modify those behaviors and somewhat thought processes, but then look at the bigger physiology in play that's causing some of these things to occur. You mentioned meditation there, and that's a good segue into our last pillar, which is stress. And as a starting point, just to, to begin that conversation, what are the things that especially golfers and athletes, what do they underappreciate about how stress is going to impact their performance. And we can talk about, because there's not all stress is created equal. There's different types of, of stress that an athlete is going to encounter. But what are the things that, that we may not put as much value as we should on having an effect, a negative impact on performance uh, with regards to stress? Well, I think to understand stress, it's, it's a wastebasket term a lot of people use, and they maybe not understand what we're referring to when we talk about stress. First off, there's really two different types of stress. There's good stress and there's bad stress. There's eustress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, or there's distress, D-I-S-T-R-E-S-S. And obviously, we all know what distress is. It's the worrying. It's multitasking. It's trying to do 10 things at once. It's the constant stimulation, the constant worrying, the constant rushing around. But the good stress is there's actually things that we can create this adaptive response and, and create a positive outcome. And so, those are things like public speaking, um, being in contention for golfers. You know, I find a lot of people when they come to me after being in contention and either closing a deal or, or getting beat, they will find that, you know what, I learned a lot about myself from that. I grew from that. So next time they can certainly understand how to handle things a little bit differently or understand what's normal. That's a positive adaptive response to that stress. Exercise is a perfect example of a good stress. And so the adrenal glands and the brain work delicately in harmony to, to manage these stresses. And so you got to understand that when we wake up in the morning, this natural surge of hormones, it's called a counter-regulatory hormone surge. It's cortisol and it's growth hormone. They spike up in the morning. It should get us out of bed and it should get us ready to attack the day without the need for, you know, eight cups of coffee and, and all this other stuff that people do to get going. What happens though, is that those cortisol levels actually decline throughout the day. And then at in the evening, they actually get really, really low and they allow us to get to sleep. So that is our stress hormone, cortisol. Now there's acute and chronic stress. And so this is where you see acute stress is adrenaline. Okay. That is, I think if you're driving down the highway and you're in the right lane and there's a slow car and you want to pass them, you step on the gas and you get around them and then you get in front of them and then you take your foot off the gas and you go back to your normal, you know, 65 miles per hour. What happens though, if you pass that car in the left lane and you keep the gas pedal down, that's chronic stress, that's cortisol. And those things can be very detrimental to the body long-term. So we have to understand what really happens physiologically. And this is what I call the somatic response. Um, this is really what happens. And so if you think evolutionarily around this, if you were our ancestors in the cave at night and a lion comes in to attack you, well, what's gonna happen? Your body is going to prime the pump, so to speak. You're gonna have this massive stress signal. The eyes and the ears uh, send signals to the amygdala. 
And when those signals are interpreted as danger, the hypothalamus acts as a command center and it starts activating this autonomic nervous system that we have. Okay. We have two parts of the nervous system. One of them we control, the other one we don't control, right? We don't control. We're not thinking about breathing right now, but our autonomic nervous system is doing that. We're not telling our heart to beat, but our heart is beating. And that's the automatic or autonomic nervous system. And there's two phases of that. There's the parasympathetic, which is the rest and digest. It's the relaxation. And there's the sympathetic, which is the fight or flight. So when we see that lion rushing into our cave, as our ancestors did, there was a, a just an evolutionary response. Hey, if I'm going to live to pass my DNA on to the next generation, I've got to get out of here and save my hide. And so what happens? Well, adrenaline is released. Okay. Adrenaline is our, we all know how we feel when we're, we're feeling adrenaline, right? It inhibits digestion. So it diverts blood flow away from the GI tract to the skin and to muscles. Uh, skeletal muscle blood flow is actually enhanced about 1200% along with the lungs when we get into this sympathetic tone. The bronchioles in the lungs dilate. Our heart rate increases. The contractility of our heart muscle cells actually increase to allow our blood to pump more, or excuse me, our heart to pump more blood to those the skeletal muscles to get up and run away. Our pupils dilate. The intestinal sphincters dilate. It inhibits the peristalsis and the digestive tract. So basically all of these adaptive responses are meant to help you save your life in the advent of stress well, or, or a perceived danger. The problem is, is that what we see on a day-to-day basis now is that 27 emails in your email box when you walk out of a meeting or 17 text messages or, okay, well, coronavirus, I don't know if I'm going to you know, die from coronavirus or if my parents are going to get sick or I don't know when I can get the vaccine. All these things that people now see as a stressful stimuli, they act just like that lion in the cave to our bodies. And so all of those things that I just mentioned occur. And so once you see that initial surge of epinephrine relax, okay, you're in good shape. We've all seen it where we get scared suddenly. And then after a couple of deep breaths where we realize, okay, that was a false alarm. We're in good shape. The problem is, is when those stimuli are, are chronic, the second phase of the stress response occurs. Okay. And that's where it's like I just said, you're driving around a car, you keep the gas pedal down. Uh, that's when we activate the HPA axis. That's the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And so basically, the hypothalamus in your brain releases this corticotrophin releasing hormone. That signals the pituitary gland to release adrenal, ACTH, we call it, adrenocorticotrophic hormone. And that signals the adrenal glands to release cortisol. Cortisol, again, is what stimulates all of those processes chronically. And so until we're able to tap the brakes physiologically, which is what that parasympathetic nervous system does, the rest and digest, we're going to stay in that state. And so what I find is the problem most people experience is that they don't know how to tap the brakes. They don't know how to activate that parasympathetic nervous system, that rest and digest. And so that chronic low-level stress keeps that HPA axis constantly activated and your motor is just idling too high for too long. And those surges can damage the blood vessels. They can increase blood pressure, causing heart attack and stroke. They increase cortisol, which is a fat storage hormone. So now you have increased hunger and increased belly fat. And all of those things are detrimental to the body. And so what we have to teach people is, okay, when do we identify what our stressors are? What are our lions coming into the cave? And then more importantly, how can we tap the brakes and how can we activate that relaxation? And that's what I work with a lot of people to do. And that's what a lot of people are, are what they build their whole careers on doing is allowing people to, to, to get into this state. And there are many tools available for people like that. 
Can we touch on some of those tools that would allow a person to effectively tap the brakes? And you mentioned, uh, Corey mentioned one of them, and you mentioned it actually earlier, the meditative apps uh, clearly getting in touch with present state awareness and whatnot. And then on the heels of that, I talk to athletes sometimes about getting up for the game and the need to have tools in their toolbox or actions they can take that actually cause them or enable them to hit the accelerator to get them up for a big moment. That's a great question. And in my world, there's so many people that have the opposite problem where they're up too much. It's always about tapping the brakes, but we'll talk a little bit about some things that when we create the balance to try to mimic those triggers to, to mm-hmm. get us up and get us going in, in a controlled fashion. Cause right. that's the biggest thing because everything comes with a crash if we don't do it appropriately. So as far as tapping the brakes, how, how can we tap the brakes? How can we push pause on our day-to-day life? Meditation is again, kind of another wastebasket term. Oh, do you meditate? Yeah, I think. What is that? Well, you know, in true meditation, the ability to sit there and be present and focus on the breath and be centered and allow mind uh, or allow thoughts to come and go and notice them, but not fixate on them and, and really focus on the deep breathing aspect of it. I mean, it's hard. I look, I've got all the apps and I try to do it and I try to think that I have a meditation practice, but I, I'm, I'm terrible at it. And I've been doing it for three or four years. There's a lot of great books about this. There's one I just read. It's by Jay Shetty, S-H-E-T-T-Y, and it's called How to Think Like a Monk. And it's fantastic because he can kind of give you the insight into just some general things that can be done on a day-to-day basis that are monk-like in nature that are going to allow you to tap the brakes and kind of get a little bit better control in the present. When you're meditating or when you're deep breathing, you're activating the vagus nerve. And the vagus, not V-E-G-A-S, but V-A-G-U-S, the vagus nerve actually activates our parasympathetic. So it will get us into that rest and digest standpoint, which is why anybody under the gun has found deep belly breathing to help. And you really only get that when you're activating the the belly breathing, right? The really deep breathing that most people never get to on a day-to-day basis. Headspace app, Calm app, Simple Habits, those are all great. Yoga is actually a fantastic way to train your body how to respond in a stressful situation. In yoga, you're essentially putting yourself into a stressful uh, position as your body senses it, and you're breathing through it. That's generally what happens in any yoga practice, no matter basic versus, you know, standing on your head for an hour, right? It's, it's the ability to react to a stress through breath. And when you get really successful at that, you know, not only does yoga have its great physical benefits as far as movement and, and core strength and structure, but when you can train your body to breathe through a stressor, you find yourself doing it off the mat, so to speak, and, and it really uh, persists in your day-to-day life and it helps dramatically. And so for my money, there's not a better additive workout than yoga a couple times a week with to anything. So that's kind of combining the stress and the physical there. I think that just the reaction to our thoughts and how we perceive stresses, because I have a lot of people who I talk to who, you know, they run billion dollar companies and I'm sitting there, I'm like, well, how do you not see that as a stress? And they're like, well, it's just what I do. Whereas if I had that decision on my plate, you know, I'd be in a puddle in the corner because like that is so, but, but some people may look at my job and say, well, you know, you saved a life before, like in your training, I mean, you, you worked in the ER, like, well, that's just what I did. Right. And so there's different ways that we perceive stress and different things are stressful to other people. So I think, you know, not necessarily always associating one aspect with 
outcomes, right? We just look at how our body works and to get more in tune with that. There's a lot of different books that help with that. I think all of Ryan Holiday's work with stoicism is phenomenal. Um, you guys turned me on to that years ago and I love every bit of his work. I think that from a golf standpoint, Zen Golf by Joseph Parent and any of Joseph Parent's work is awesome. It's one of my favorite books. I probably listen to it three or four times a year. It's one of those situations where all of these tools out there allow you to be more present, allow you to have context around the thoughts that you're having. And when we start doing that and we start having these deep breathing strategies, we can tap those breaks and we can really be able to get into that parasympathetic activation. And then from breathing standpoint, there's alternate nose breathing, there's the box breathing, the four by four by four method. The really cool website you guys should all check out if you haven't heard it. There's a gentleman by the name of Wim Hof, W-I-M-H-O-F. And his breathing techniques and his breathing strategies and his cold water immersion strategies, it's phenomenal for aging and parasympathetic balance. And I won't even begin to get into his work, but it's really fascinating to see the physiologic adaptations that can occur when you implement some of his strategies. But uh, it's WimHoffMethod.com, and it's really, really neat to see. Are there any vitamins, supplements, anything that you would recommend to help regulate some of the stress? Yeah, I think that... Um, the most common thing that most people use adaptogenic herbs. They've been really popular in the last 10 years. And these are things like ashwagandha, astragalus root, rhodiola, schizandra. You know, some people don't tolerate them very well, but the whole idea is that, you know, essentially these herbs work at a molecular level by balancing that hypothalamic, pituitary, and adrenal access. So as far as chronic stress goes, they can really dial that down. Just like anything, people are going to respond to it differently. I've had some people with heartburn. I've had some people with the exact opposite effect where they're laying stimulated constantly. But, you know, the dose makes the poison on this type of stuff. I always tell people there's so many different benefits to all these things. It's worth giving them a shot and seeing how you respond. A popular one now is there's, you know, even Phil Mickelson's got it in his, his coffee for wellness now is the L-theanine. And then a lot of people use GABA. L-theanine and GABA are both amino acids, and they basically have the potential to promote a mental relaxation via um, alpha waves in, in the brain. And when you can combine some of these things together, you can actually recreate the state of relaxation in the brain via these alpha wave activations. And uh, you can combine those things with things like magnesium for better sleep or with B-complexes to get more of like a controlled focus. And so, you know, I think as far as the the most beneficial and the safest ones, I would start with some of the adaptogenic blends. And again, you can Google adaptogenic herbs and find 10,000 supplements. You got to look at where you're going to get your supplements from, Pure Encapsulations, Thorn. Those are all very reputable brands. You can get some really good quality products. But you know, again, that's one of those situations where much like eating organic and photobiomodulation, look, that's great if you have everything else in check. And if you can afford it, but some people don't have the ability to do that. And so that's where simple things like deep breathing, meditation, mindfulness, eating clean, stabilizing blood sugars, those go a long way first before you start adding those in. You mentioned alpha waves and it took my, my thought process to a place of where I've been historically and what many more athletes are doing currently back in the day of heart math. Um, Doc Childress, 10, 15 years ago, I was a user as I was trying to be a competitor of uh, heart rate variability training, which though they're probably the earliest proponent of it, at least commercially. And now with focus band and opti brain and NeuroPeak, I've tried all of them looking to find an edge can you help our listeners understand the benefits of heart rate variability training and maybe point them in a direction of best solutions out there? Maybe there's something that I'm not aware of. I was exposed to this, gosh, I mean, it's been years now. But what's interesting at the time when I looked at this, 
it wasn't as easy to measure as it is now. And now, as you know, there's all sorts of wearables that can do it. There's bands, there's headbands, there's chest straps, there's finger monitors. Essentially, what we're looking at is we're looking at the beat-to-beat variability of the heart. So if I check my pulse right now, I would see that maybe it's 55 or 60 beats a minute resting. And um, that doesn't mean that if you're 60 beats a minute that your heart is beating once a second. It might be point. 8, 9 seconds, and then 1.2 seconds. And the ability of the heart to change that beat-to-beat variability is a great indicator in our neurologic fitness. Just like the brain can send signals to the heart, the heart can send signals to the brain. And so there's this, what we call, physiologic coherence that has to occur, which is kind of this this marrying of balance between neurologic and, and cardiovascular. And it's the electrical signals inside the heart that develop this. And, and a lot of times, stress and adrenaline and all these other exposures can create a variation in that beat-to-beat variability. And if you track, so, you know, the first exposure any of us probably ever had before we ever remember it was when we go to the hospital to, you know, see our wives or deliver a baby, they monitor the heart rate variability of a fetus. That's what fetal monitoring does. And when you see good, healthy, high heart rate variability, the baby's healthy and everything's ready to roll. When you start seeing a low variability occur, that's a problem and the baby's got to come out and we've got to intervene. So that was the first place we ever saw heart rate variability really occur. But when we're now seeing athletes and those who are looking at higher levels of performance use this, what we can find is that when we optimize this coherence uh, via this almost neurofeedback-like strategy, we can get our physiologic coherence that I keep talking about to allow those signals to be sent back and forth appropriately. And we keep those erratic disordered rhythms to a minimum. And if you think about anybody that's under stress, many times we make judgment errors. And and that's essentially what happens with this. When we have that low variability and there's erratic and disordered beat-to-beat variation in our heart, we make inappropriate decisions. We make inappropriate movement patterns. And so this training that can occur it's quite beneficial. And it's different than training the brain to relax. So we're not looking for a relaxation state necessarily. We're looking for this calm balance of positive emotions. It's, it's a calm yet energized state. Uh, some people may have described something similar in the literature as the flow state, which we've all read about and we all try to achieve. But basically, we're trying this mental and physical coordination of our body uh, to, to become optimized. And OptiBrain, heart math, uh, NeuroPeak, the focus band, all of those are great. And, you know, it, it all just depends on what resources you have available to you. Um, I believe NeuroPeak incorporates heart rate variability and neurofeedback. Some of the other ones just focus on heart rate variability, like heart math. And, you know, Kim, I'd love to hear your experience with some of that too, because I think that, again, everybody responds differently to it. And when you, when you build and you layer these different uh, interventions on one another, you'll, you'll start to get better outcomes. Yeah, one wonders whether, well, I wonder whether the experience that I had with all the different devices that I've experimented with, two of which I've got on my desk here in front of me, is uh, much of a placebo effect, and maybe that's the skeptic inside of me revealing true character, or one wonders whether there's real effects to be had there. Clearly, there's science suggesting or confirming, really, that there is some edges to be um, to be earned there. The real challenge that I have with any of these is the disconnect between the measured state and my ability to 
actively create the change that then is indicated in the measured state. For instance, the last time I was on OptiBrain, the movie stops if my brainwave state is dysfunctional, for lack of a better term. Well, then it comes back online into a functional range, but yet I'm not too sure what the mechanism or what changed in my head to actually create that. So without that disconnect, it seems like it's fairly fairly cloudy skies and I can't see clearly. And, and that's where I find, so I've had the exact same experience. I've actually done neurofeedback with a trained neurofeedback therapist, and that was massively more beneficial than me trying it on my own. And I'll, I'll never forget the first time I was doing it. I was sitting there watching this documentary and I'm trying so hard to get my coherence up and I can see my alpha waves on the screen or my, I think it was my delta waves at the time. I can't remember, but something was just off the charts and I, and the screen is going dim and I'm trying so hard to get it back. And the harder I try, the dimmer the screen goes. And finally the therapist stopped me and walked me through some specific strategies and then just clear as soon as I let go, boom, the screen just came back. And that was the only time I've ever experienced it. But there were specific things that they did as a neurofeedback therapist mm. that helped me through. And I think that's really hard for people to get on their own unless that's paired with someone who knows exactly what they're doing to help guide indeed, you through it. Indeed. Um, in piggybacking yeah. on that, we did the study tour, what, two years ago now, Corey, and we had a therapist involved in the study tour whose expertise was in this domain. And I had the headset on and the waves were evident. Everyone could see them on the screen or broadcast on the TV screen. And there were two tasks that I was asked to perform. One which required very little motor coordination, a pretty rote task of catching and, and throwing and catching a ball. And then the minute I had to spin a pen on top of my fingers, like I failed to do that time right there, all of a sudden the brain waves change. So, so, so clearly there is merit to what is being measured, but how to tap into turning that merit to what is being measured into actionable life. This is going to make me a better performer. Uh, I'm just not too sure that I'm fully on board with it yet, but uh, certainly willing to turn over all stones, right? Right. And just like anything that creates more stress than it solves, we want to be careful about that. So yeah. that may be stuff that we're a couple of years off from being able to get that truly out to the masses. But, but again, I think nobody's going to argue the benefits of it when done correctly, um, but doing it correctly is, is the next challenge for that. Right. Well, Doc, I think we're going to let you off the hook here. We could have spent hours and hours on each of the pillars. And even as you said, as you're talking about the the therapist, it helps to have someone curate and help synthesize all these different rabbit holes that we can go down. And you said at the very beginning that rather than to treat with pills for ills, it's much better to have a more kind of upstream approach. And what's necessary for that is knowledge. And we've got to understand the why of why certain things can work and why we should be putting attention on certain things. And you're a really, really good teacher and to help us understand that. So I know personally, I really appreciate you. Where can we send other people to learn more about you and what you do? Because I know that that there's any number of topics that would have piqued some interest that the, that listeners will want to know more. My website is easy. It's, it's drlissy.com. It's D-R-L-Y-S-S-Y.com. And, and it'll outline a little bit about some of the things that I do and allow people to uh, to reach out. I am very... To do what I do, uh, much like you guys, I have to uh, work with fewer people in a better manner. And so um, I want to make sure I'm working with people who are invested in, in their health and, and optimizing things. And I love to work with someone who's all in uh, very much how you guys work as well. And so We've got a little bit of a wait list for, for clientele, but we'd love to help those who, who really want to, uh, to gain benefit. And what we'll be able to do in the future is to be able to help more of the masses by putting out more content on our social media and, uh, and other outlets like that. Very similar to how 
you guys do with your podcast. That's where we're going for, but my, my website right now, drlissy.com is going to be helpful as far as that goes. And I appreciate you guys uh, allowing me the opportunity to come on and share a little bit of wisdom on what I feel to be big needle movers in the health and wellness space. And um, it's nice to, to work with folks like you guys who, who understand the value of, of doing things the right way and, and getting the results uh, the right way. So thank you guys. Amazing, Doc. Thanks very much. We're the ones indebted to you, as will our audience be as well. Cheers. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. We're also pretty active on Instagram, so follow at Altus Performance, and you can also follow on Twitter at Team Altus. If you haven't done so, please hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast, leave a review, share it with others, and be sure to stay tuned to future episodes of Earn Your Edge. Thanks for listening.